welcome everyone to Understanding the I Am That Is You podcast. Hey everybody, it's your girl Wynn Ruffin, and I pray all is well with everyone, and your hearts and minds are full of love, joy, and compassion for all God's children and all God's creation. And if that be so, let us give thanks and praises to our mighty I Am Presence for love, light, and life. Then send out love, blessings, and prayers for protection throughout all the atmosphere, saturating Mother Earth with our loving energy and quickening the hearts and minds of mankind everywhere with positive vibrations. Amen. Give thanks and praises for love and light. And y'all be loved. What he wished to know he could learn from none other than the Essenes. The Gospels have maintained perfect silence as to the deeds of Jesus, previous to his meeting with John the Baptist, through whom, according to them, he in some way took possession of his ministry. Immediately afterwards he makes his appearance in Galilee with a clearly defined doctrine, the assurance of a prophet, and the consciousness of the Messiah. But evidently this bold and premeditated debut was preceded by the long development of a veritable initiation. No less certain is it that this initiation must have taken place in the Soul Association in Israel, which, at that time, preserved the real traditions of the prophets, and adopted their mode of living. There can be no doubt of this among those who, rising above the superstition of literal interpretation, have the courage to discover how things are linked together by their spirit. This arises not merely from the intimate relations seen to exist between the doctrine of Jesus and that of the Essenes, but even from the very silence kept by the Christ and his disciples concerning this sect. Why does he who attacks with unparalleled courage all the religious sects of his day, never mention the Essenes? And why do neither the apostles nor evangelists speak of them? Evidently because they considered the Essenes as belonging to themselves, as being linked with them by the oath of the mysteries, and linked to the sect of the Christians. The order of the Essenes constituted in the time of Jesus the final remnant of those brotherhoods of prophets organized by Samuel. The despotism of the rulers of Palestine, the jealousy of an ambitious and servile priesthood, had forced them to take refuge in silence and solitude. They no longer struggled as did their predecessors, but contented themselves with preserving their traditions. They had two principal centers, one in Egypt, on the banks of Lake Maris, the other in Palestine, at Engadi, near the Dead Sea. The name of Essenes they had adopted came from the Syrian word Isaiah, physician, in Greek, therapeutes, for their only acknowledged ministry with regard to the public was that of healing disease, both physical and moral. They studied with great diligence, says Josephus, certain medical writings dealing with the occult virtues of plants and minerals. Some of them possessed the gift of prophecy, as, E. G. Menahem, who had prophesied to Herod that he should reign. They serve God said Philo, with great piety, 
not by offering victims but by sanctifying the spirit, avoiding towns, they devote themselves to the arts of peace, not a single slave is to be found among them, they are all free and work for one another. The rules of the order were strict, in order to enter, a year's novitiate was necessary. If one had given sufficient proofs of temperance, he was admitted to the ablutions, though without entering into relations with the masters of the order. Tests, extending over another two years, were necessary before being received into the Brotherhood. They swore by terrible oaths to observe the rules of the order and to betray none of its secrets. Then only did they participate in the common repasts, which were celebrated with great solemnity and constituted the inner worship of the Essenes. Among the Essenes, the brothers, properly so called, lived under a community of property, and in a condition of celibacy, cultivating the ground, and, at times, educating the children of strangers, the married Essenes formed a class affiliated, and under subjection to the other. Silent, gentle, and grave, they were to be met with here and there, cultivating the arts of peace. Carpenters, weavers, vine planters, or gardeners, never gunsmiths or merchants. Scattered in small groups about the whole of Palestine, and in Egypt, even as far as Mount Horeb, they offered one another the most complete hospitality. Thus we see Jesus and his disciples journeying from town to town, and from province to province, and always certain of finding shelter and lodging. The Essenes, said Josephus, were of an exemplary morality, they forced themselves to suppress passion and anger, always benevolent, peaceable, and trustworthy. Their word was more powerful than an oath, which, in ordinary life, they looked upon as superfluous, and almost as perjury. They endured the most cruel of tortures, with admirable steadfastness of soul and smiling countenance rather than violate the slightest religious precept. Indifferent to the outward pomp of worship at Jerusalem, repelled by the harshness of the Sadducees, and the prayers of the Pharisees, as well as by the pedantry of the synagogue, Jesus was attracted towards the Essenes by natural affinity. The premature death of Joseph set entirely free Mary's son, now grown into a man. His brothers could continue the father's trade and supply all family needs, so Mary gave him permission to leave secretly for Engadi. Welcomed as a brother and one of the elect, he rapidly acquired over his very masters an invincible ascendancy, by reason of his superior faculties, his ardent love, and an indescribable divine element manifested throughout his entire being. From the Essenes he received what they alone could give him, the esoteric tradition of the prophets, and by its means, his own historical and religious tendency were trend. He came to understand how wide a gulf separated the official Jewish doctrine from the ancient wisdom of the initiates, the veritable mother of religions, though ever persecuted by Satan, i.e., by the spirit of evil, of egoism, hatred and denial, allied with absolute political power and priestly imposture. He learned that Genesis, under the seal of its symbolism, Concealed the theogony and cosmogony as far removed from their literal signification, as is the profoundest truth of science from a child's fable. He contemplated the days of Elohim, or the eternal creation by emanation of the elements and the formation of the worlds, the origin of the floating souls, and their return to God by progressive existences or generations of Adam. He was struck with the grandeur of the thought of Moses, whose intention had been to prepare the religious unity of the nations by establishing the worship of the one God, and incarnating this idea into a people. Afterwards he was instructed in the doctrine of the Divine Word, already taught by Krishna in India, by the priests of Osiris, by Orpheus and Pythagoras in Greece, and known to the prophets under the name of the mysteries of the Son of Man and of the Son of God. According to this doctrine, the highest manifestation of God is man, who, in constitution, 
form, organs, and intelligence, is the image of the universal being, whose faculties he possesses. In the earthly evolution of humanity, however, God is scattered, split up, and mutilated, so to speak, in the multiplicity of men and of human imperfections. In it he suffers, struggles, and tries to find himself, he is the son of man, the perfect man, the man-type, the profoundest thought of God, remaining hidden in the infinite abyss of his desire and power. And yet at certain epochs, when humanity is to be saved from some terrible gulf, and set on a higher stand, a chosen one identifies himself with divinity, attracts it to himself by strength, wisdom, and love, and manifests it anew to men. Then, divinity, by virtue and breath of the Spirit, is completely present in him, the Son of Man becomes the Son of God, and his living word. In other ages and among other nations, there had already appeared sons of God, but since Moses, none had arisen in Israel. All the prophets were expecting this Messiah. The seers even said that this time he would call himself the son of woman, of the heavenly Isis, of the divine light, which is the bride of God, for the light of love would shine in him, above every other light, with a dazzling splendor, hitherto unknown on earth. All these secrets which the patriarch of the Essenes unfolded to the young Galilean on the solitary banks of the Dead Sea, in lonely Engadi, seemed to him wonderful, but yet known. It was with no ordinary emotion that he heard the chief of the order comment on the word still to be read in the book of Henoch, from the beginning the Son of Man was in the mystery. The Father kept him near his mighty presence, and manifested him to his elect. But the kings shall be afraid and shall prostrate themselves to the ground with terror, when they shall see the Son of Woman seated on the throne of his glory. Then the elect shall summon all the forces of heaven, all the saints from on high and the power of God, and the cherubim, the seraphim, the ophanim, all the angels of might, all the angels of the Lord, i.e., of the elect and of the other might, serving on earth and above the waters, shall raise their voices. At these revelations the words of the prophets, read and meditated upon times innumerable, appeared before the eyes of the Nazarene, with a profound and terrible light, like lightning flashes in the night. Who could this elect be, and when would he appear before Israel? Jesus passed a series of years among the Essenes. He submitted to their discipline, studied with them the secrets of nature, and the occult power of healing. To develop his spirit, he gained entire mastery over his body. Not a day passed without self-questioning and meditation on the destiny of humanity. Jesus, the Last Great Initiate, by Edward Charest, 1908. Consider farther in what light was regarded the divine revelation of the Jewish Bible by the Gnostics, who yet believed in Christ in their own way, a far better and less blasphemous one than the Roman Catholic. The Fathers have forced on the believers in Christ a Bible, the laws prescribed in which he was the first to break, the teachings of which he utterly rejected, and for which crimes he was finally crucified. Of whatever else the Christian world can boast, it can hardly claim logic and consistency as its chief virtues. The fact alone that Peter remained to the last an apostle of the circumcision, speaks for itself. Whosoever else might have built the Church of Rome it was not Peter. If such were the case, the successors of this apostle would have to submit themselves to circumcision, if it were but for the sake of consistency, and to show that the claims of the popes are not utterly groundless, Dr. Inman asserts that report says that in our Christian times popes have to be privately perfect, 
but we do not know whether it is carried to the extent of the Levitical Jewish law. The first 15 Christian bishops of Jerusalem, commencing with James and including Judas, were all circumcised Jews. In the Sefer Toldos Jeshu, a Hebrew manuscript of great antiquity, the version about Peter is different. Simon Peter, it says, was one of their own brethren, though he had somewhat departed from the laws, and the Jewish hatred and persecution of the apostles seems to have existed but in the fecund imagination of the fathers. The author speaks of him with great respect and fairness, calling him a faithful servant of the living God, who passed his life in austerity and meditation, living in Babylon at the summit of a tower, composing hymns, and preaching charity. He adds that Peter always recommended to the Christians not to molest the Jews, but as soon as he was dead, behold another preacher went to Rome and pretended that Simon Peter had altered the teachings of his master. He invented a burning hell and threatened everyone with it, promised miracles, but worked none. How much there is in the above of fiction and how much of truth, it is for others to decide, but it certainly bears more the evidence of sincerity and fact on its face, than the fables concocted by the fathers to answer their end. H.P. Blavatsky We may the more readily credit this friendship between Peter and his late coreligionists as we find in Theodore at the following assertion, the Nazarenes are Jews, honoring the anointed, Jesus, as a just man and using the evangel according to Peter. Peter was a Nazarene, according to the Talmud. He belonged to the sect of the later Nazarenes, which descended from the followers of John the Baptist, and became a rival sect and which, as tradition goes, was instituted by Jesus himself. History finds the first Christian sects to have been either Nazarenes like John the Baptist, or Ebionites, among whom were many of the relatives of Jesus, or Essenes, Iasons, the Therapeuti, healers, of which the Nazarea were a branch. All these sects, which only in the days of Irenaeus began to be considered heretical, were more or less Kabbalistic. They believed in the expulsion of demons by magical incantations, and practiced this method. Jervis terms the Nabatheans and other such sects wandering Jewish exorcists, the Arabic word Nabi, meaning to wander, and the Hebrew Naba, to prophesy. The Talmud indiscriminately calls all the Christian Nazari. All the Gnostic sects equally believed in magic. Irenaeus, in describing the followers of Basilides, says, they use images, invocations, incantations, and all other things pertaining unto magic. Dunlap, on the authority of Lightfoot, shows that Jesus was called Nazarios, in reference to his humble and mean external condition, for Nazarios means separation, alienation from other men. The real meaning of the word Nazar signifies to vow or consecrate oneself to the service of God. As a noun it is a diadem or emblem of such consecration, a head so consecrated. Joseph was styled a Nazar. The head of Joseph, the vertex of the Nazar among his brethren. Samson and Samuel, Simson and Semba El, are described alike as Nazars. Porphyry, treating of Pythagoras, says that he was purified and initiated at Babylon by Tsar Otis, the head of the sacred college. May it not be surmised, therefore, that the Zoroaster was the Nazar of Ishtar, Tsar Otis or Nazar Ad, being the same with change of idiom? Ezra was a priest and scribe, a hierophant, and the first Hebrew colonizer of Judea was Zerubbabel or Dezoro or Nazar of Babylon. The Jewish scripture indicate two distinct worships and religions among the Israelites, that of Bacchus worship under the mask of Jehovah, and that of the Chaldean initiates to whom belong some of the Nazars, the Theurgists, and a few of the prophets. The headquarters of these were always at Babylon and Chaldea, where two rival schools of Magians can be distinctly shown.
those who would doubt the statement will have in such a case to account for the discrepancy between history and Plato, who of all men of his day was certainly one of the best informed. Speaking of the Magians, he shows them as instructing the Persian kings of Zoroaster, as the son or priest of Oramists, and yet Darius, in the inscription at Bayastan, boasts of having restored the cultus of Ormazd and put down the Magian rites. Evidently there were two distinct and antagonistic Magian schools. The oldest and the most esoteric of the two being that which, satisfied with its unassailable knowledge and secret power, was content to apparently relinquish her exoteric popularity, and concede her supremacy into the hands of the reforming Darius. The later Gnostics showed the same prudent policy by accommodating themselves in every country to the prevailing religious forms, still secretly adhering to their own essential doctrines. H. P. Blavatsky The loved ones of the sacred fire, I wish to bring you assistance tonight, an encouragement that will forever abide with you. And I wish to assure you that we are far closer in association with you than you sometimes feel or understand. I wish you to know at all times the angelic host are ever watching every opportunity to come as close to you all as possible. And the attention that you give to the angelic host, and the calls that you give are the action that opens to you in outer world conditions. When you understand that the entire angelic host draw the sacred fire of cosmic love everywhere they abide, no matter what has to be corrected, the sacred fire of cosmic Christ love is that which they always pour forth to change conditions into that whichever glorifies the mighty eye in presence and protects all that is constructive. Now in the accomplishment of purifying the earth and releasing mankind from the hordes of evil of the centuries, the angelic host, I assure you, will perform a very definite part of the purifying and freeing of all in this world. And that is why mankind must understand the reality of the angelic host, and must accept the closeness of their presence and their constant answering of the calls of weary mankind. The love and mercy which the mighty I am presence pours forth to life is brought into outer physical conditions and individuals, by the angelic host, for they must always guard any focus of the sacred fire or the cosmic light rays, within which constantly flows the concentrated electronic force from heights of perfection that must come into outer physical conditions to purify and perfect them. So the more you can be aware of the angelic host, the more you call to them, the more you love them, the more you accept them, the closer they will come to you, the greater will flow their sacred fire into your affairs, and the greater protection they can bring to you at all times. And in the midst of the outer world's chaos, legions of the angelic host clothed in white fire, or any colored flame from the central sun, can appear at any moment, and they can control conditions in the atmosphere or through the powers of nature. So there are far more powerful friends than any of mankind yet understand. Beloved Archangel Michael When you realize what powerful beings the great cosmic law of life provides to come to the assistance of unascended mankind, you will realize how necessary it is to awaken the masses of the people to the reality of the presence of the angelic host with them in the atmosphere of earth, many times when the outer self is not aware of the power that is helping and protecting them. The outer selves of mankind are so held in the distressing conditions, through the attention of the intellect and the feeling, that they do not withdraw the attention often enough and place it upon the ascended masters or angelic host often enough to let in the very power that fulfills their calls, and would bring them the protection and perfection they desire. 
The angelic host are the messengers of the cosmic beings and the ascended masters, who are part of the angelic host, constantly offering help to mankind, and constantly dissolving and consuming that which has been created of discord. Every ascended master is an angel. Then there are legions of angels who have never been embodied, but who direct such concentration of the sacred fire into many activities of this world that mankind could scarcely believe how great is that power of the sacred fire, unless individuals saw it with a physical sight. Power indescribable, love that mankind yet does not comprehend, and assistance without limit is constantly flowing forth, consciously directed, consciously concentrated, consciously sustained by the angelic host to help mankind to freedom. And it's time the masses of the people understood the service that the angelic host has given to life all down through the ages. Cycle after cycle has that love poured forth, and legions without number have drawn the concentration of the sacred fire to assist mankind every time an opening is given, or the attention will provide the way for help to be released. So we are far closer in association with you than you ever understand, or will understand until you come into the ascended master's octave, when you too become one of the angels. Applause. Thank you precious ones. Beloved Archangel Michael, 